Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello all, Eric Rivenus here with a new episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I was planning on a two-sectioned, lynching-themed episode today. First, the lynching of Frank McManus, and then my interview with the director of the McLeod Historical Society, who talks about some murders and a lynching on Buffalo Creek, north of the cities. I've decided instead to release them as separate episodes. The main reason for this is that the following story might be uncomfortable for some. It has to do with an assault on a little girl in 1882. Please, please, listener discretion is advised on this episode. Do not listen any further if you are sensitive to subjects such as this. All right, the warning has been given. Let's continue. When the word lynching is used in modern conversation, it conjures up images of cattle rustlers swinging from trees in the Wild West or the racially motivated hangings in the American South. But usually, Minnesota isn't mentioned. When it is, people point to the horrible day of June 15th, 1920, when a brutal mob of 5,000 lynched three black traveling circus workers accused of raping a white woman in Duluth. Further investigation showed there is no evidence that links those men to that crime. I have done, by the way, an episode with Michael Fido on my regular Most Notorious podcast about the Duluth lynchings but there have been others in Minnesota as well. I'll continue on now with a lesser known episode from Minnesota's past. On Friday, April 27th, 1882, a disturbing crime took place in Minneapolis, one that shocked and revolted the citizens of the city 
so completely that they decided to take justice into their own hands just hours after the terrible deed had been done. The headline of the article in the Minneapolis Tribune the next day summarized the sensational crime like this. A shocking outrage, it read. The little daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Jason Spear, outraged by a tramp. The Spear family lived in a house at 1016 4th Avenue South, close to what is the Minneapolis Convention Center today. While now an area filled with concrete and steel, in 1882, much of it was a residential neighborhood. At two o'clock in the afternoon, four-year-old Mina Spear, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Jason Spear, asked permission to play in the Peterson house about a block away. The families were friends and Mina was often there. An hour or so later, Mrs. Spear visited Mrs. Peterson to fetch her daughter, but became alarmed when her neighbor told her she hadn't seen little Mina that afternoon. Mrs. Spear immediately set out to search for her daughter and found a couple of small boys who were frequent playmates of Mina. She asked them if they'd seen her daughter that day, and they replied that they had. A man had approached the three of them, given each of them a nickel, and took them to a local store to buy candy. When Mina tried to spend her nickel, the man told her not to, and instead bought several sticks of candy for her. He then asked her if she wanted to go with him, and the little girl assented. The boys told her mother that they watched her walk away with the man. Mrs. Spear found a telephone, rang the police station immediately, and an officer named William Gleason was quickly dispatched to her house. At around this time, a party of ladies had gathered on the street and were searching for Mina along 4th Avenue. The two boys who could identify the man went along with the search and it wasn't long before they saw him slinking down 4th Avenue near the high school which sat approximately where the entrance to 35W is now. The newspaper reported later that he had a hangdog look. That's the man, the boys called out, and Mrs. Spear rushed up to him, demanding that he take her to her daughter. The man, on his heels at the sudden barrage, denied knowing anything about her. It was at this moment that Officer Gleason approached the group, not yet knowing what had really happened. When the man saw the police officer, he broke away from the group of ladies and dashed down the street, 
with Gleason in close pursuit. Finally, at the intersection of 10th Street and 6th Avenue, Gleason tackled the man to the ground, arrested him, and took him to the Central Police Station lockup. Minutes later, a worker named John Farley came walking down forth toward Mrs. Spear, holding in his arms the still little body of Mina Spear. The Minneapolis Tribune detailed an account of what had transpired. The particulars of the outrage are unfit for publication, it read. Suffice to say that the brute, after enticing the child away from her home, carried her to the vicinity of Three and a Half Avenue South and 18th Street, and there secreted in a pile of brush, accomplished his hellish designs using a knife to aid him. The doctors state that the case is the worst that has ever come under their observation. In the lacerated form of the poor little child substantiates their assertions only too fully. The heartbroken parents have the sympathies of the entire community in the great sorrow which has befallen them and a terrible justice will be surely meted out to the wretch who has committed this horrible crime while Mina Spear was in bad bad shape she was still alive doctors were uncertain of her chances of pulling through but for the time being, the little girl clung to life. Once at the police station, Officer Gleason examined the man and found blood on his hands, trousers, underwear, and vest. Two fingers on his right hand were covered in blood. He was put in a cell and charged with rape. A reporter from the paper visited the man in his cell that night and was able to interview him. He said his name was Frank McManus and had arrived in town from South Boston one month earlier. He was 26 years old, of medium height with a heavy build, and had a light-colored beard and mustache. The reporter commented that he was one of an army of transients who had arrived in the city that spring by rail from around the country. When asked what had made him do something so terrible, McManus could not answer and only hung his head in shame. Soon the mayor of Minneapolis Doc Ames arrived and had a closed cell door chat with the man. When the mayor came out, he announced that McManus had made a full confession of the crime to him. Police were further convinced of his guilt when Mrs. Newell, the woman who owned the store, 
where McManus had taken the children for candy, immediately identified him as the man who'd left her establishment with Mina Spear. News of the brutal crime spread quickly, and hours after McManus's arrest, hundreds of people were gathered on street corners discussing what had happened and wondering what to do about it. The police station soon filled with agitated citizens threatening to take their own action. So the Minneapolis police chief, Albert Munger, whisked McManus a few blocks away to the county jail at approximately 10.30 p.m., where he thought the man might be more safe. But transferring the prisoner did not dissuade the mob. At about midnight, over 100 men, wearing handkerchiefs over their faces, attacked the county jail. They used sledgehammers and timbers to knock down doors, and once in, cried out, Where is he? Show us the man. Bring him out. By 2.30 a.m., the angry mob had full control of the jail. But Sheriff Mace Eustace, when confronted by the mob, refused to tell them which man McManus was, and he also refused to hand over his keys. My life is in your hands, Eustace told them. You can take it, but you will never get the prisoner from the jail. Tell us where he is, or I cannot be responsible for your life, one man said to him. Never, the sheriff replied. He struggled against the masked vigilantes, but it was to no avail. A half dozen or so of the men held him down while the rest continued their search. After some debate amongst members of the mob, they finally set their sights on one prisoner in particular, in a third-floor cell, whom some of the other inmates they had questioned had offered up to them. By a quarter past three in the morning, the vigilantes had battered down the door of their suspect and hauled him out. But this, if nothing else, was a cautious mob, and they agreed that, just to be sure, they would take him down to the Spear home and have Mrs. Spear identify him. So they did just that. Mrs. Spear was summoned from her home, and she immediately agreed that it was the same man whom she had confronted the day before on 4th Avenue. That's the man. Take him away. Take him away, she cried. Oh, those eyes. I shall never forget them. The leaders of the vigilante group were convinced they needed no more new evidence. They had the man who committed the vile act and decided to hang him. A large, lone burr oak tree sat on the front lawn of Minneapolis Central High School, just a block or so away. 
the mob moved quickly. And before the group escorting McManus even reached the tree, a proactive man had already shimmied up and set the rope, tied as a noose over a protruding limb. During all this time, McManus had steadfastly denied doing this. But once they got to the tree, and as the noose was being put around his neck, McManus finally changed his story. I did it, but I was drunk, he admitted. Up with him, boys. Now all together, men, someone said. Dozens grabbed hold of the rope and hoisted McManus up, where he writhed and suffocated for five minutes until he finally took his last breath just before 4 a.m. The body was left to hang for hours afterwards and became quite a spectacle. Even the school children on their way to high school stopped to stare at the swinging corpse. A photographer came out and took a, a strange picture of Frank McManus hanging from the tree with a crowd of onlookers staring at the corpse and smiling at the camera. Later that day, the coroner ruled McManus's death due to strangulation at the hands of persons unknown, and a brief inquiry was held. A piece of the rope used to hang McManus was displayed in a downtown window, and hundreds came to admire it. Sheriff Eustace and Police Chief Munger were later asked why there weren't any officers stationed at the county jail to protect the prisoner. Only Sheriff Eustace had been there to meet the mob. Both had the same answer. They didn't want any further bloodshed, and both were convinced that no mob, no matter how large, could break McManus out of his iron-reinforced cell. They thought it was too strong to be broken into. The Tribune offered an editorial on the crime and the lynching that followed, voicing their approval over the swift justice meted out on Frank McManus. There are supreme emergencies possible to the life of every community, it wrote which inevitably induce, if they do not justify, a temporary suspension of the ordinary forms of law and a temporary resumption by the people of that soaring power of self-protection, which, for the sake of convenience and greater certainty of justice, has been delegated to courts and juries. Such a crisis arises when a crime is committed against society of such hellish atrocity and nameless cruelty as to be without a precedent and beyond the reach of common remedies. Such a crisis 
usually sufficient in itself to produce the result we have named, is aggravated a thousandfold when such an atrocity is perpetrated in a community where, through the outrageous default of the established jury system, the blackest crimes go unpunished and red-handed criminals go unwhipped of justice. The paper went on to point out that just weeks before, in Minneapolis, a man named John Tuohy had faced trial over the murder of his wife and was found guilty only of manslaughter in the second degree, punishable by a maximum of seven years in prison. At the same time as the assault on Mina Spear, many people in the city were still reeling from what they perceived as a serious miscarriage of justice. This, the Tribune opined, might have had much to do with the mob that hanged Frank McManus. Days later, the local Minneapolis chapter of the Humane Society met and discussed what had happened. They concluded that the mob was justified in its actions, but the body of McManus should not have been left to hang for so long. Had it been thrown immediately into the river, on the other hand, it would have been acceptable to the group. So what about Little Mina Spear? For days afterwards, papers reported that doctors did not know whether she would live or die. But eventually, she pulled through, although she would have plenty of her own personal tragedy in years to come. Just a few years later, her older sister and only sibling would die of consumption at age 15. Her mother would die not long after. But by 1901, Mina seemed a very well-adjusted young lady, and newspapers regularly reported on her social activities. I even found a slightly humorous article about how she and her friend had been cited by a dour police officer for riding their bicycles too fast through downtown Minneapolis, which offers some clue that she had recovered from her injuries enough to be physically active in later years. Mina Spear would also attend Hamlin University and eventually become a teacher. She would teach at a high school in Alexandria, Minnesota, in fact, by 1910. But by 1912, she'd married and three years later would give birth to her only child, who would unfortunately die only weeks after birth. And by 1919, Mina Spear herself had passed away at age 39. Although at the time of this recording, I have not yet determined her cause of death. I sincerely hope it had nothing to do with her attack from all those years before. As a four-year-old girl, it's, it's hard to know whether she would have any real memories of the horrible crime 
committed upon her. But some physical impediment endured over all of those years as a result of that afternoon might have been a terrible emotional reminder to her for the rest of her life. I did, by the way, search far and wide for a photograph of Mina Spear in hopes of making her more real all these years later. But as she had no children, nor even nephews or nieces, tracking down a family member is a pretty difficult venture. There might be descendants of cousins out there somewhere with a with a picture or a journal or some memento of her life, but finding them would be an uphill battle, I believe. One avenue I pursued was through the Douglas County Historical Society, which has a, a set of old yearbooks from Alexandria High School. Faculty were typically photographed along with the students, and I thought I had a good shot using that angle of finding a picture. Unfortunately, the earliest yearbook edition they have is 1912, and Mina had just left her teaching position in 1911 to enter married life, so it was not meant to be. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you soon.